recording. Okay, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. We're looking at landscapes of Islam in in Wabash's book, Letters to a Letters to a Young Muslim. Who would like to read for us? Do, do the volunteering. Do I have to whip out this? All right, here it goes. Who's going to pick? I can go. See, never fails. Okay, Farah, who wants to read for us? Okay. Say, you know that Islam is the religion of Muslims as revealed to us just over 1400 years ago by the Prophet the Prophet lived in Mecca but had to flee to the nearby city of Medina with the early followers of Islam because the people of Mecca rejected the message of Allah. Soon, though the followers of Islam grow, grew in, num in number and power and took over command of Mecca. These two cities are now the holy cities of Islam and are located in Saudi Arabia. You, may, you might not know yet you might not yet know about the different schools of Islam. You belong to the largest group within Islam, called the Sunnas or Sunnis. The Sunnis came into existence sometime after the passing of the Prophet when disagreements arose as to who should take up his position as head of the Muslim community. There were those who believed that the next leader should be a member of the family of the Prophet, and there were those who believed that the best man should be the next leader. In the end, the next leader was someone that many Muslims regarded as the most able to lead, and the fourth leader after the Prophet was a member of his direct family. Those who supported the family are now called the Shia, and those who supported the best man to lead are called the Sunnis. Okay, stop right there for a second. Very good. So, so a couple, a couple brief points. Uh, in terms of the population of the Muslims, first, some very, very simple questions. When the Prophet, peace be upon him, uh, uh, how many years was he in Mecca, and then how many years was he in Medina? So from the moment of Revelation, age 40, how many years was he in Mecca? How many years was he in Medina? Anybody know? Remember from your Sunday school days. Wasn't it six in one of those, for one of those? I mean, a little bit more than six, but a little bit more. Eight. So <laughs> you just keep guessing. So so <laughs> he, was, uh, he was in Mecca for about 13 years, and then Medina for about 10 years. And when he migrated from Mecca to Medina, the Hijra, how many Muslims were there total in the world Wait, at the time? Wait, hold on. I have a question about the first question. Yes. So, obviously, like, they, like, returned to Mecca, right? Did they? Right? <laughs> or no? Okay. So, so, basically, the, the, the short version of the story is the prophet peace be upon him he's about 40 years old when he first starts receiving revelation right and he's preaching it the Quraysh uh at first are just ignoring him and then as he's getting more followers they start escalating and then they start torturing and and then the prophet allows a group of the muslims to go to abyssinia right uh, to ethiopia uh then some eventually start returning some start returning after the Hijra, they start going to Medina, okay? Uh, the prophet, he spends his last 10 years in Medina and he settles there. And, and so he dies in Medina, although part of the last part of the story is the conquest of Mecca and then the eventual conquest of the whole Arabian Peninsula. And so that all happens within the prophet's life, peace be upon him. So, so even when they like go to conquer Mecca, like they didn't like actually the Prophet didn't live there. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how many people actually chose to move back to Mecca. 
fits around each other to stay in Medina, especially because the Prophet himself is in Medina. Yeah, because I remember like the story of like them being like really merciful when they like ha- were finally like more powerful and stuff. But yeah. I, I just didn't realize that they um, had settled permanently in Medina. Mm-hmm. Right, and and so yeah, so so what's the population of Mecca at this time? Not today. I'm saying at the time of the Prophet peace upon him. Someone throw out a number. I will move up to guess six, but focus on driving. Okay. Fourteen thousand. Okay, a little bit lower. Twelve thousand. <laughs> okay, anyway, so population of Mecca is upwards of about five thousand people. So think about how small that is. So Loyola on a full day is bigger than Mecca in terms of population. I mean, size-wise, Mecca is going to be bigger because it's going to be homes as opposed to quads. But but. That's to put it into perspective, meaning my high school at its peak was comparable to the size of, of Mecca. So how many people had become Muslim after 13 years of preaching? And once again, throw out some numbers, even if they're random. 200. Oh, almost got it. So higher, <laughs> highest numbers, low-end numbers say about 100-something, high-end numbers say about 300-some. And, and so think of the point that in 13 years of preaching, less than 10% of the people became Muslim. 90% of the people rejected him. Now, uh, if we, so we said he's in Medina for 10 years. Uh, if we move about seven years forward, so he does the migration at around age 53 after 13 years of Mecca. Moving seven years forward, the population of Muslims starts increasing into the thousands, the low thousands. And then there's the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. And then the population of Muslims starts increasing much more. And and so what's the population of Muslims by the time the Prophet dies? So in fact, at the time of the conquest of Mecca, which is at most two years before the Prophet's death, peace be upon him. Um, the population of Muslims is give or take about 20,000. And then guess what is the population of Muslims at the time the Prophet dies, peace be upon him? So uh, just a couple years later, throw out a number. 20,000 to anyone? I don't you want to guess a number as long as you're focusing on driving. 47,000. 150,000. Yeah, not even. But but the point is that the population slowly grows, slowly grows, and then skyrockets all the way at the very end. And and so, yeah, I just want to draw your attention to both the size and and the the growth. Now, to really put in perspective, so one of the capitals of the world at this time is Constantinople. Its population at this time is about 150,000 people. So Mecca is tiny. The population of the Muslims after or at the death of the Prophet, peace be upon him, is still very, very tiny compared to you know, what's going on with the Romans and the Byzantines in Europe and such. And so even think about how tiny the Battle of Badr was. With total both sides, we're talking about 2,000, not even 2,000 people. Right, about 300 Muslims against, give or take about a thousand, you know, or more uh, Quraysh, and that tiny thing, which is which the Battle of Badr, 
probably took place on a field not much larger, larger than the Loyola Quads. And that was one of the big milestones of human history. So I want you to, to really think about size of, of these uh, and proportions of these, these events. Okay, so then having said that, this is one of the things we discussed before, that the common narrative is that the difference between Sunni and Shia is, is who should have been the Khalifa. That's actually secondary. What is the actual difference? The actual difference is who do we turn, whom do we turn to, to learn about the the Quran and the Prophet peace be upon him. In Sunni tradition, we turn to the Sahaba. In Shia tradition, we turn to the Imams. That's the actual difference between Sunni and Shia. The Sunnis are relying upon the Sahaba as the primary narrators and the interpreters. Of, of the Quran and the Prophet, peace be upon him, and Shias are relying upon the Imams, these specific descendants as the primary uh, narrators and interpreters of the Prophet, peace be upon him. That's the actual difference. Who should have been the Khalifa is also absolutely a difference, but I'm saying that's actually secondary. And that's an issue that comes up later. What are you saying, Amina? Yeah, I have a question. Um, so like, obviously like there's like the Imam structure now that I'm like vaguely familiar with, but like how did it originate? So in terms of, of, of the Imams in Shia tradition, the first one is, is Ali, may Allah be pleased with him, I'm speaking as a Sunni. And then Hassan is the next one, Hussein's the next one, Jafar Sadiq, this is something that you can Wikipedia easily. But in mainstream Shia tradition, there's there's 12 Imams. And, and, and so how is this forming? This is in Shia narratives, this is the claims themselves of these people who are saying that this is what I am and tracing them back to specific teachings of the Prophet, peace be upon him. Where the Prophet, peace be upon him, is speaking of Ali, saying that he is my Mawla, and, and his Mawla, and if you take me, then you take him. Sunni tradition interprets these same teachings differently, and then regarding Imam Hussein, that Imam Hussein is an extension of me. And so, and so some of this is not so much a dispute over what the Prophet said, peace be upon him, it's a dispute of what did he mean by, by what he's saying. So in Shia tradition, using the same teachings, this is this is how the Imam structure is legitimized by teachings of the Prophet, peace be upon him, and then further by claims attributed to the people themselves. Those people that are the Imams in Shia tradition are, are central figures in Sunni tradition as well. It's just the status is a different status given. And then when we get into smaller Shia communities like the Ismailis and the Imams continue all the way through to today. Right? So I said in mainstream Shia tradition, it's 12 Imams. Uh, whereas in Ismaili tradition, and then there's offshoots within the Ismaili traditions, there's the Dawudi Bohraz and, and others, where that whole tradition continues all the way through to today and beyond. Follow-up question? Okay. So but the key point I'm saying is that he is saying, yeah, the difference is, is who should be in the Khalifa, and I'm saying, yeah, that is a difference of opinion, but that's not the actual difference. The difference is who do I turn to to learn about the Prophet, peace be upon him. Okay, uh, sorry, continue. Um, when I say best man, the group around the Prophet, known as the Sahaba, were all men with the best moral qualities. Each had his own particular personality. I do not want to go into the detail of the disputes that have pursued the two groups through the centuries because the Sunni Shia divide is one of the great stress for the Muslims of the world. Why? Well, I'm also going to interrupt there. Uh, it is at times, uh, I think we overplay the stress aspect of it. 
I mean, yeah, there's times where it's actual fighting and there's times where it's actual persecution. No one can deny that aspect. Uh, but what I'm also suggesting is that because of how early this division began, we'd effectively say this is Allah's will. And, and it perhaps was necessary to keep the two groups in competition with each other. But from a scholarly perspective, Sunni scholars are going through Shia scholar texts and Shia, and Shia scholars are going through Sunni, Sunni scholar texts, right? So it's, uh, it's not the way Catholic and Protestant are, where the Protestants break off from the Catholic church with a completely new theology, except for the cores of Jesus at the center, peace be upon him. And it's not like the break of, of the Orthodox Christians and the, and the Catholic Christians, which is basically literally two that have completely broken off from each other. Sunni and Shia, the difference in, on paper, unless you know what to look for, you're going to have trouble figuring out if you're reading like a Sunni piece or a Shia piece. Right? Uh, there'll be some subtleties in the vocabulary that will be different. And then on top of that, uh, the real difference more often is more the actual experience. And so the way we speak of white privilege or male privilege, there's Sunni privilege as well. Where Sunnis will often see themselves as the default and we'll see Shias and Ismailis and everyone as breaking off. And then Shias will often see themselves as being loyal to the family of the Prophet, peace be upon him. And will often see Sunnis as not being as loyal as they should be. That's one, one difference in terms of the experience. Another difference in the experience is just the experience of being a majority and a minority. You know, and here now I'm speaking much more about the experience of Islam in America. If we're in Lebanon, it's gonna be a different experience. If we're in Iran, it's gonna be a different experience and so forth and so on. But uh, the point is that in the same way that all of you, including myself, have the experience of being a person of color which means we have in our consciousness, not the fact, not only the fact that we're people of color, but that we're not white. That's also in our consciousness more than we realize. Whereas a white person doesn't have as much of the consciousness about being white as much as we have the consciousness about being a person of color. And so, and, and, and Aman, you're welcome to, to jump in or chime in. Often what you'll find is that a Sunni will have a consciousness of, you know, I'm just, this is Islam, it's a default of Islam. And more often with the Shia, you'll have a consciousness that I am a Shia, as opposed to a Sunni having the consciousness of being a Sunni. Right. And part of the consciousness of being a Shia is also, I am not a Sunni. Right. And, and so it's the minority experience is also is, a, is much more of a fundamental difference than what I'm saying is on paper. And, and then I'm saying part of the minority experience is the imposition of of uh, of Sunni privilege. Any questions or thoughts about all that? And we got two idols in the room once again. All right, uh, let's continue. Uh, Far. While you hear loud voices on both sides denouncing the other, you should know that there's a vast number of Muslims on both sides of this divide who see the differences as minor and the joint faith faith as central. Given that there are said to be 300 million followers of the Shia sect and 1,400 million Muslims, we must look forward to the day. <laughs> notice that, notice the, uh, the, the, the Freudian slip. 1,400 million Sunnis. Okay, continue. <laughs> you, said, you said there's 300 million Shias and 1,400 million Muslims. <laughs> oh, did I? Oh. <laughs> I 300 million Shias, 1,400 million Sunnis. Yeah, all right, continue. 
I'm sorry. Okay. Um, we must look forward to the day when Sunni and Shia sects, no, clerics can put their differences behind them and thus remove the main obstacle to peace in the Middle East. And again, uh, I, I, uh, it's a fair point. And so like I'm also saying, like I said, on paper, the difference is not uh, as big as we think, but I'm also, I don't want to delegitimize uh, uh, either side because that can also be, you know, uh, interpreted to completely delegitimize, you know, Shia beliefs and such, me speaking from a, from a, from a senator perspective. And then I also, uh, I don't want to overplay the conflict matter. Yeah, it's different. In Chicago, uh, uh, depending upon where a Shia lives, either a, a Shia will go to a local Sunni masjid. Right now, there's probably about 100 Sunni masjids, and there's probably about five, maybe six Shia majlises. And, and so, so it depends upon where you live, where you're going to go. You know, there's one up in, in Evanston. There, there's one in the north side of Chicago. There's one in Naperville. Uh, there's one in Bartlett. And how many is that? One, two, three, four. And then one other one that um, the location that is still being at the month. There used to be one in Glendale Heights. And I don't know if that one's still there. Uh, and, and so you'll meet many, many Shias who also were sent to full-time Sunni Islamic school and such, because that was the closest thing that, that people had. Uh, but yes, there are times where the difference the differences become political differences, which then become violent differences. That's also there too. And so I'm also saying, on the one hand, I'm saying we can't overplay it, but also we can't ignore that too. All right, continue. Beyond these broad groupings, we will be able to find all kinds of approaches within Islamic life. You will find Muslims like the Salafis who copy every action ever recorded about the Prophet. Their worldview is that the only way to be most to be a Muslim is by Oh, sorry, sorry. It's by copying or emulating the prophet. There is a powerful logic behind this. The prophet was the messenger of Allah. Who would know better than the prophet what being a Muslim means? How do they know what he did in such detail? Through the hadith or the sayings. This is a collection of what the prophet said and did as recorded by those who witnessed him. This was a great communal effort to record that what to record that took place over the 200 years or so after the prophet passed away. Okay, very good, and interrupt again. So the Salafis, I don't remember if we've talked about them. So the Salafis are a modern movement. And, and so he's kind, of, he's kind of conflating two different points. So the Salafis are a movement that are sort of like the Protestants in Christianity. So, so part of what was the essence of the Protestants, this is in the 1500s, uh, uh, you have Martin Luther and a few others who are saying we don't need to go to the Catholic Church to get closer to God. Yeah. And again, this is in the Christian umbrella. And, and part of the reason he's saying this is that he's saying, okay, the, the, the leaders in the church, the Pope and such, they're corrupt. And the second reason he's saying this is because what else is taking place at this time? You have Gutenberg in the Bible, which is now making access and ownership of the Bible inexpensive. Whereas before, paper used to be expensive, books would be expensive, literacy would not be that high. But now everyone is reaching the point where they can almost afford a copy of the Bible, which then means I don't need to go to the priest to tell me how to understand the scripture. I can read the scripture for myself and understand it. And that's how, that's sort of the essence of the Protestant church. And then the Salafis come along uh, more so in the last, like I said, 50 years. And they are saying the same thing. Uh, and almost motivated by the, the same arguments. They're saying, okay, these humans in Islamic history, they've all 
they're all human, so they're fallible. And I should go straight to the prophet, peace be upon him, which means I should read the hadith directly. And, and so in the same way that at the time of the early Protestants, there you had people who are untrained in scriptural interpretation reading the Bible. The Salafis are lay people who are not trained in hadith interpretation, who are now reading it uh, for, for themselves. So they're reading the hadith for themselves, saying, okay, I don't need to go to scholars. I don't need to go through all these different schools of law, Hanafi, Shafi, Maliki, Hanbali, Jafari, Zaidi, so forth and so on. I can read this for myself. And as an idea, it's, it's a clever idea. In practice, however, it's very, very problematic because when you're reading these Hadith texts, there's assumptions built into them. And one simple assumption is that if a Hadith is quoting something, there's probably blank spaces that, are, that you would have to fill in with other Hadith or with eyes in the Quran. This is also a principle in terms of tafsir of the Quran that if an ayah says something, there might be assumed blank spaces. And an example of that is if you open up early in Surah Al-Baqarah, in the second surah, um, there's an ayah where Allah is speaking to the children of Israel and he says, you know, guard yourself against a day in which no intercession will be accepted, okay, period. So if you take that on its own, it sounds like no intercession is gonna be accepted. But then if you go to Ayat al-Kursi, same surah, you know, man yashfa'u, so who is it that can give intercession except with Allah's permission? And then there's other passages that are understood that Allah gives permission of intercession to whom he wills. Now, if you put both of those eyes together and go for the most merciful reading, it means that there is intercession only where Allah allows. It. But if you just read the first uh, reference on its own, it seems like there's no intercession. Question. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I don't want to sound like I'm... No, I don't really care for things, but um, this, from what the meaning that like basically you came to, then that like intercession can only happen with permission. Isn't that just interpreting the second or the other sources and not interpreting the first one? Like, so, I feel like that's not a combination. Okay. So, so add to that, we have numerous teachings of the prophet peace be upon him, where he's saying, if you do this, it'll act as an intercession for you. You know, if you read Quran on a regular basis, if you read such and such Buddha on a regular basis, if you, you know, if you die as a martyr, that they will have the power of intercession. So, so the point I'm making is that when we look in the Hadith tradition, there's many narrations uh, supporting intercession. Even that the Prophet himself will, inshallah, be an intercessor. And so if we only take the, the, the specific reading of the first ayah, we're kind of stuck because we have authentic narrations where the prophet is saying something different. You know what I'm saying? And so part of it is ayahs with ayahs, but it's also ayahs with hadith as well. Let me know if it makes sense or not, or what do you think? Um, it kind of makes sense, but if you're coming at this... Uh, hmm. Think about it. Or feel free to ask anything, you know. We won't sound... We won't sound, uh, shout heresy. <laughs> I just don't understand how you wouldn't read that as a contradiction. Like, you know what I mean? We always say, like, you always hear that, like, there's no contradictions in some. Yeah. But, like, if there's an absolute statement and then conditional statements, how is that? Like, I feel like logically any any conditional statement paired with an absolute statement is at some level a contradiction. Yeah, you go with the absolute statement. 
I'll give you a different example. And in fact, uh, rather than me just point them, uh, but rather than me make reference to them, let's actually look them up. What do you all see on the screen? Do you see anything? Uh, no, I think you stopped sharing. Yeah. Yeah. I see your beautiful face, Professor, but that's it. Make you smile bigger and bigger, like you can't smile. Okay. I have a question for you. Okay. Well, Are we going to have those Chaplin games on Friday? Does that still happen? So, so Ram's like, I've had enough of this learning. I need to play some games. <laughs> I was, I wasn't planning on it. We can. Yeah, that would be nice because I just finished my Orgo exam, so I want to like have some fun. Um, you want me to beat you in uh, Kahoot again, Hermsha, in biology, right? Uh, I don't think you did, but okay. Number one. We all know this is being recorded, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah let this go on record that I beat Rumsha at a biology Kahoot when she's a pre-med, and I'm not. And let it also be known that this is one of actually, those claims. Actually, okay. you, used, you used my name, so uh, I no, don't the one think you have with, any... <laughs> The one I won with was with Ottawa's name. Actually, I beat you both times, so you're right. So, yeah. <laughs> and we're close to finishing your conversation. You know, can we go back to Al-Islam? Okay, so, uh, so Amr or anyone, how would you read this eye right here? What do you, do you all see a circle? Okay. So uh, we get to where is this? Twenty. All right. And remember, we said to the angels, prostrate before Adam. So, and when we said to the angels, Usjudu. So prostrate li Adama to, to Adam. So I'm just basically showing that the translation is consistent. Prostrate before Adam. So they all did. Okay. So fasajadu, they prostrated. Illa iblis. They all did, but not iblis. They refused, acted arrogantly, becoming unfaithful. Uh, if I read this, does it look like iblis is an angel? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We said to the angels, prostrate. They all did, but Iblis refused. Is Iblis an angel? No, he's a jinn. He's a jinn. Don, don, don. So how do we reconcile these? Elsewhere in the Quran, he is a jinn. So what do you think? You're not only, Iblis was not born a jinn. He becomes a jinn. Uh, that is an ultra minority opinion. Where'd you hear that? That's fascinating. That's what I was taught. Because yeah, I don't think that's a mainstream Shia opinion. That's uh, that's literally a fascinating, very very ultra ultra minority opinion. What I was taught is that Iblis was an angel, and then the moment he did that rebellious act, he becomes a jinn. That's yeah, I feel like so that's something I've heard too. Is, that's, a, that's the Christianity's version that Iblis was an angel and he. Yeah, Iblis was a yeah that is a that, that's also a that's Christianity, yeah. Christian take too. Yeah. So, so Iblis is always a jinn in terms of the like, mainstream Sunni Shia view, is he's always a jinn. 
And the and here it would be like saying, we told all the students to stand and they all stood, but not the donkey. They were saying that it's easy yeah, to read but the if, passage. If Iblis was always a jinn, then how was he amongst angels? So, so the story about how he's amongst angels relates to his piety and such uh, until this moment. Meaning he, he was a very, very special jinn until this moment, and then he just went way down. But okay, but that's, sec that's uh, uh, secondary to the point I'm making. Yeah. I'm saying that the ayah looks like it can be read to say that Iblis is an angel. And, and so what looks like a categorical statement, we don't even discover if it's a categorical statement unless we look through the rest of the text and find modification. Um, what was the original example we were talking about? So we'll look at it right here. Oh, wait, no, it's up here. It's 46%. Ah. What the who have taqwa yomen la tajzi? Again, a day nafsun an nafsun shade. So a day in which no one's going to be able to, to help anybody. No one's going to be able to reward, uh, you know, uh, give any uh, reward to anyone else. Wala uh, yukbalu. And so what will not be expected from, from it, from any soul, is shifa. Intercession. So it looks very categorical, doesn't it? No intercession will be accepted. Of course, here you got footnotes and everything. And then when we look, same surah. Well, did someone just say something? Okay. Same surah, Ayat al-Kursi, which uh, most of you, if not all of you, have memorized. Who could possibly intercede with him without his permission? So one way to reconcile both of those is say, okay, they don't contradict, because the first one says no intercession. Here it says no intercession without Allah's permission, therefore no intercession. Okay, that's one way to read them. The other way is to say that this is modifying the first one the first one sounds like no intercession, but here it's saying no intercession except where Allah permits, and there's other ayahs that support that further. And the bigger point I'm making is that there's numerous hadith that speak about intercession. And so, so this is part of the process of interpretation, but this is exactly the point that I'm illustrating, that the challenge of the Protestants and the challenge of the Salafis is they don't have any of this training. And so they're saying, well, here's what the ayah says. That's what it means, done. Which means that then I can look at ayahs like this. And let's look at this one right here. What do you all think about this one? Once the sacred months have passed, kill the polytheists who violate their treaties wherever you find them. Mm. I don't think we can see your screen if you're sharing it. Oh man. Or at least I can't. Let me, let me unshare and reshare. Stop sharing. Restart share. How about now? Yeah. Okay. 
So, so look at this I number five right here. Once the sacred months have passed, so one question is going to be, what are the sacred months? Those are not mentioned by name in the Quran. They're mentioned in the Hadith literature. He'll be polytheists wherever you find them. And what is interesting, he'll polytheists wherever you find them. Who violated their treaty is not even part of the text. That's the translator added. Old snap, that looks pretty categorical. Would you suggest that there might be context there? Why? But the ayah says it's categorical. Kill them wherever you find them. Which means from this point forward, all of you would go, you know, go through the streets of Chicago or Atlanta. No, obviously not. Okay. So, so the point is that's an easier example to give just because it's it's dealing with very serious practical consequences. But again, what is the principle that I'm saying here? That it's not, it's 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 very tricky for someone without training in the interpretation of the Quran, in the interpretation of Hadith, to go to that material and automatically start providing interpretation. Uh, this is literally how ISIS operates. And this works two ways. I can argue that all the ayahs in, in the Quran are all peaceful and this ayah doesn't apply anymore, but I need to be able to give sound textual proof to say why. In the same way that someone else who says, no, this is what we're supposed to practice right now, they need to give sound textual proof as well. And so the issue with the Salafis <clears throat> is that uh, it's a nice intention. The goal is to, to uh, to try to practice Islam as much as you can in the way of the Prophet, peace be upon him, by following the Hadith as closely as you can. Like it says at the bottom, the worldview. Can you all see the screen? Yeah, can you again? The worldview is that the only way to be Muslim is by copying and emulating the Prophet, peace be upon him. And so it's very catchy, but they're speaking from the perspective that it's all crystal clear. I don't need any training. I can just read this for myself. And that can be very destructive. Yeah. And so, so then it means a mixture of, all right, any sort of frame that I have. So if I'm a physician, how do I look at things? Am I problematize things? Uh, if I'm trained in a different field, then that's how I'm going to approach the material. And the analogies that some of you have heard me give it would be the equivalent of me, not a medical professional, going to WebMD, diagnosing myself and determining, yeah, I've got, yeah, I'm not going to go to the hospital because I have 35 different versions of cancer. Is I got this and I get this and I get this, this, you know, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, cancer, testicular cancer, everything, right? You know, and so, so that's the, that's the, in practice, the problem. Nice idea, problematic. Second half, any, anybody have any questions about the, about the, the Salafi approach and everything? In the subcontent, they're actually called Ahl al-Hadith. Yeah, the name Salafi is referring to the Salaf, the first generation, like the people who came before. And they tend to really not like Shias at all. Yeah, they tend to say very, very horribly nasty things about Shias, which is another problem. Uh, the history of Hadith, uh, I think he's also leaving out a number of things. So I'll give you a super high-speed version of the history of Hadith. And Farah and Taqwa should be experts on this because we covered this in class. And I'm sure you remember everything from, from Theo 295. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's what I thought. So anyway, 
So you have in the generation of the prophet, peace be upon him, you have the people around the prophet that are trying to model themselves after him. And then they're also sharing with others what they saw, what they witnessed. And at first, they're not noting these down in, on paper because they don't want it to get confused with the Quran. And eventually, they're noting these down. And so these are the hadith. And so the hadith are the compilations of anything that the Prophet said, did, or witnessed seeming to give approval. Okay. So that's what the hadith compilations are. Anything the Prophet, peace be upon him, said, did, or witnessed seeming to give approval. Said makes sense. Did make sense. What do we mean by witness seeming to give approval? It means he was present at something and he didn't say there was anything wrong. So the assumption is that he approved, right? Or he didn't show any expression. And then they are teaching later generations or teaching later generations and the concern increases to figure out what is authentic. And so while this teaching is taking place, so this is now after the death of the prophet, peace be upon him, there are people who are trying to make sure the chain of narrations is authentic. And what do I mean by this? It would be like, basically, suppose that someone on, in the group chat says, all right, what did y'all learn in the chaplain, cha uh, the, the, life, uh, the life class? And then Aman says, I heard Muzaffar say such and such. And Fada says, I heard him say such and such, right? And then the first question is going to be, is Iman or is, is, Iman, is Aman or is Fada, are they reliable narrators? Okay. Now let's say Aman tells someone in the group chat who then tells someone who's not part of the group chat. Okay, we'll call that person Abdullah. So Abdullah hears from someone in the group chat, let's say Nasser, who hears from Aman, who hears that Muzaffar says such and such. Then the concern is that the footnotes are those sound that Abdullah is saying, I heard from Nasser, who heard from Aman, who heard from me. So there are people who are then focused on figuring out if these chains are certifiable as authentic. And there's multiple scholars across generations figuring this out <clears throat> and then developing whole systems to figure out how to authenticate the narrations. And that's going on continuously, starting from a couple decades after the death of the prophet, peace be upon him. And then we reach a point where there's been so much scrutiny about each of these chains that people are coming along, compiling narrations that we determine, that they determine to be ultra authentic. And that's what's taking place about 200 years after the death of the prophet, peace be upon him. And so in Shia tradition, there's four authenticated collections. In Sunni tradition, there's six authenticated collections. Again, if you look at the context, most content, most of it is similar, but there's there's some subtle but significant differences in determining what is what is uh, authenticated. So that's what Gobash is talking about here when he says, um, you know, uh, how did they know what he did in such detail through the hadith or the sayings? This is a collection of what the prophet said, did, recorded by those who witnessed him. It is a great communal effort to record that over 200 years or so after the death of the prophet. That's one of the last parts of it. It's a process that actually began long or shortly uh, after the death of the prophet, peace be upon him. And we still have these giant collections of, 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 of this research and such. Um, so this is a little bit more about Hadith. Let's do one more paragraph and then maybe at that point we'll, we'll call it a day and chill. Uh, Far, you want to read that? There are yes. groups. Yeah. Um, there are groups who contest which sayings are accurate and which are not. Already then you can see how Islam will evolve differently depending on what assumptions you accept.
within Sunni Islam, anyone who was a Muslim at the time of the Prophet can be consulted on what the Prophet said or did. Within Shia Islam, the circle of reliable sources is minuscule in comparison, including only the closest companions of the Prophet. It is like the difference between building your philosophy of life on the basis of a short story or on the basis of a saga written over thousands of pages. Both are legitimate in principle, but they will lead to different outcomes. Both are facets of Islam. Yeah, yeah. So I would read this and I would think, okay, this is a Sunni writing this by the by the word choices and such. But in a nutshell, we're basically saying that the, uh, in terms of Shia authentication, we're privileging the family of the immediate family of the Prophet, peace be upon him, in terms of narration. And then in Sunni tradition, we're privileging the people who seem to spend the most time with him among the companions. And so, so for example, uh, Ali in both schools would be given the highest standard, but Abu Bakr would be given a very high standard for Sunnis. Uh, Allah would be given a very high standard, so far and so on. And so there are different methodologies uh, that do refer, that do result in, in some detailed differences. But in practice, uh, if we were to look at, for example, uh, Shia acts of worship, they often seem to very, be very similar to Maliki Sunni acts of worship. In terms of the process of Shia law, a lot of it seems to be very similar to Sunni Hanafi law. And a lot of it is just because of uh, obvious developments that are that are similar in, in these very, very different schools. But like I says, both are facets. Cannot be denied. And then at the end of the day, we say, Allah knows best in terms of who's authentic, who's not. Okay, uh, we're already at 545. Let's stop right here, inshallah. Anyone have any other questions about anything? Okay, very good. And so someone make a mental note. And I think we seem to forget this every week. Uh, we'll start. I don't even know how to tell what page this is. Illiterate. Well, start from the paragraph that says further differences appear. Okay. Any other questions, thoughts, comments about anything? Alrighty then, we will stop right here, inshallah. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika, nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta, nashadu wa la And then Ramsha and Adil can continue their uh, very important fight over who is better at who. Okay. Objectively me. I won. <laughs> Notice, as soon as you said that, Ramsha has left the meeting. Okay. Okay, so, uh, can't right, handle it. Everybody. <laughs>